Welcome to Bible Study for Regular People. I'm Tana, and let's get started. All right, so starting off 2024, I'm just picking up where I left off. In Kings chapter 6, we are in the life of Elisha. So Elisha's ministry began in the year 848 BC. And at this time, the kingdom of Israel has had 10 kings. Their current king is Joram, J-O-R-A-M. And the tribe of Judah has had five kings. Their current king is Jehoram, J-E-H-O-R-A-M. So, 2 Kings chapter 6, this is the floating axe head, then Elisha traps the Arameans, and then Ben-Hadad besieges Samaria. So, three different sections in this chapter, it's kind of a longer one. 2 Kings 6 verse 1, one day the group of prophets came to Elisha and told him, as you can see, this place where we meet with you is too small. Let's go down to the Jordan River where there's plenty of logs. There we can build a new place for us to meet. All right, he told him, go ahead. Please come with us, someone suggested. I will, he said, so we went with them. When they arrived at the Jordan, they began cutting down trees, but as one of them was cutting a tree, his axe head fell into the river. Oh, sir, he cried, it was a borrowed axe. Where did it fall, the man of God asked, which would be Elisha. When he showed him the place, Elisha cut a stick and threw it into the water at that spot. Then the axe head floated to the surface. Grab it, Elisha said. And the man reached out and grabbed it. Verse 8. When the king of Aram was at war with Israel, he would confer with his officers and say, We will mobilize our forces at such and such a place. But immediately Elisha, the man of God, would warn the king of Israel. Do not go near that place, for the Arameans are planning to mobilize their troops there. So the king of Israel would send word to the place indicated by the man of God. Time and time again, Elisha warned the king so that he would be on the alert there. The king of Aram became very upset over this. He called his officers together and demanded, Which of you is the traitor? Who has been informing the king of Israel of my plans? It's not us, my lord the king, one of the officers replied. Elisha the prophet in Israel tells the king of Israel even the words you speak in the privacy of your bedroom. Mm. Mm-mm. No. <laughs> that's not really what he was saying, but that's their analogy. Verse 13. Go and find out where he is, the king commanded, so I can send troops to seize him. And the report came back. Elisha is at Dothan. So one night, the king of Aram sent a great army with many chariots and horses to surround the city. When the servant of the man of God got up early the next morning and went outside, there were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. Oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried to Elisha. Don't be afraid, Elisha told him, for there are more on our side than on theirs. Then Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. As the Aramean army advanced toward him, Elisha prayed, O Lord, please make them blind. So the Lord struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Then Elisha went out and told them, 
You have come the wrong way. This isn't the right city. Follow me, and I will take you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to the city of Samaria. As soon as they had entered Samaria, Elisha prayed, O Lord, now open their eyes and let them see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they discovered that they were in the middle of Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he shouted to Elisha, My father, should I kill them? Should I kill them? Of course not, Elisha replied. Do we kill prisoners of war? Give them food and drink and send them home again to their master. So just a quick pause. There's the uh, the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River between them. And on the right at the north is Aram. So the king of Aram and that region has sent his troops around the north side of the Sea of Galilee and down to Dothan, which is near Samaria, to close by cities. So they go to Dothan to get Elisha. Elisha has God blind them all, and he treks them down the road to Samaria, where apparently is the king of Aram's enemy residing, the king of Israel. And the king of Israel is on Elisha's side. So when he sees them all show up, he's like, well, did you bring them all here so I could kill them? And Elisha, of course, says no. So that's just some geographical context there. We're picking up in verse 23. So the king made a great feast for them. Well, yeah, Elisha says, no, don't kill them. Uh, we don't kill prisoners of war. We're going to take good care of them instead and then send them home. So 23, so the king made a great feast for them and then sent them home to their master. After that, the Aramean raiders stayed away from the land of Israel. All right, last section of chapter six. This is Ben-Hadad besieges Samaria. Sometime later, however, King Ben-Hadad of Aram mustered his entire army and besieged Samaria. As a result, there was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 pieces of silver and a cup of dove's dung sold for five pieces of silver. Ah, huh. okay. So they're selling donkey's heads and I have no idea what they're doing with that or with a cup of dove's dung. Not a clue. But anyway, verse 26. One day as the king of Israel was walking along the wall of the city, a woman called to him, please help me, my lord, the king. He answered, if the Lord doesn't help you, what can I do? I have neither food from the threshing floor nor wine from the press to give you. But then the king asked, what is the matter? So the king of Israel, he's walking along the wall of the city, which has just his city, which has just been besieged by King Ben-Hadad of Aram. So I'm wondering what he's doing walking around this wall. Anyway, she replied, this woman said to me, come on, let's eat your son today. Then we will eat my son tomorrow. Oh. So we cooked my son and ate him. Then the next day I said to her, kill your son so we can eat him. But she has hidden her son. Oh my gosh. So the people in the city have been starving for so long. These two women have resorted to cannibalism of their own children. 
Verse 30, when the king heard this, he tore his clothes in despair. And as the king walked along the wall, the people could see that he was wearing burlap under his robe next to his skin. May God strike me and even kill me if I don't separate Elisha's head from his shoulders this very day, the king vowed. Elisha was sitting in his house with the elders of Israel. This is, you know what? My guess is he's thinking that because Elisha is the one who had him spare the army of Aram previously. And now they've gathered ranks and come and attacked them and his people are starving to death and eating their own children. And he's blaming Elisha for it. Verse 32, Elisha was sitting in his house with the elders of Israel when the king sent a messenger to summon him. But before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, a murderer has sent a man to cut off my head. When he arrives, shut the door and keep him out. We will soon hear his master's steps following him. While Elisha was still saying this, the messenger arrived and the king said, all this misery is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Elisha replied, Listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord says. By this time tomorrow in the markets of Samaria, five quarts of choice flour will cost only one piece of silver, and ten quarts of barley grain will cost only one piece of silver. The officer assisting the king said to the man of God, That couldn't happen, even if the Lord opened the widow's windows of heaven. But Elisha replied, You will see it happen with your own eyes, but you won't be able to eat any of it. And that's where I'm going to stop. That was uh, ending on uh, chapter 7, verse 2. All right, so just to recap, Second Kings chapter 6. First, we read about Elisha uh, and the floating axe head. God performs this miracle through Elisha, which is a tiny miracle compared to what happens next. Then we read about the king of Aram sending his army to invade Israel only for them to basically experience God handling the situation. And I was just meditating on this one a bit, right? So the, the army shows up in Israel and Elisha is there with his little protege. The protege is freaking out, right? What are we going to do? And this is where Elisha prays. And it says, the Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. And it got me thinking, you know, sometimes I have experienced situations in life where the situation is such that the only outcome I can see happening doesn't look good, which is probably what everybody in this story except for Elisha was foreseeing. Not only did God send horses and chariots of fire, but nobody died. There was no battle. And I'm sure everybody there was expecting a fight to occur. But instead, God just blinds everyone. Sends them on their way down to Samaria, and then proceeds to feed them. You know, and I think sometimes we are like that. 
Of course, we cannot see the outcome. We cannot see God's plans. And the only possible solution or outcome that we can picture is some sort of a battle. And it's just because we're blind. We can't see the horses and chariots of fire, whatever the solution is that God has lined up. And he pulls tricks out of his sleeve, so to speak, you know, who, who in this situation would have expected the entire army to go blind? (laughs) Anyway, I'm kind of in one of those situations now. There's this conversation I feel like I need to have with someone, but I don't really want to because I don't like, I'm not a conflict person. I'm not a pot stirrer. I don't like that. I will avoid conflict if I don't feel it's not absolutely necessary. And I have a feeling that God has something in the works. And I'm not, you know, all of, all of the scenarios I played in my head on how this conversation could go or should go or what I should say or shouldn't say, I have a feeling whatever happens, it will probably turn out totally different than anything I have pictured. And I feel like that's kind of, anyway, that's my takeaway from this passage. Then, some time lapse before verse 24 picks up, and now we have King Ben-Hadad of Aram, which may be a different king than in the previous section, decides to uh, besiege Samaria again. This time they succeed, and to the total devastation of the city. And one of the footnotes drew my attention to a prophecy of this happening in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 49. This was not a for sure prophecy. This was a potential future. In Deuteronomy 27 and 28, uh, Moses is speaking to the people and tells them, you know, your future is either going to be this or that. And here's what it, here's what it says that may relate to, uh, our story from second King six. So this is Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 49 to 57. The Lord will bring a distant nation against you from the end of the earth, and it will swoop down on you like a vulture. It is a nation whose language you do not understand, a fierce and heartless nation that shows no respect for the old and no pity for the young. Its armies will devour your livestock and crops, and you will be destroyed. They will leave you no grain, new wine, olive oil, calves, or lambs, and you will starve to death. Remember, the people are starving in Samaria in our current time period that we're reading on. Verse 52, they will attack your cities until all fortified walls in your land, the walls you trusted, uh, the walls you trusted to protect you are knocked down. They will attack all the towns of the land the Lord your God has given you. The siege and terrible distress of the enemy's attack will be so severe that you will eat the flesh of your own sons and daughters whom the Lord your God has given you. Remember the women resorting to uh, eating their own sons. 
Verse 54, the most tender-hearted man among you will have no compassion for his own brother, his beloved wife, and his surviving children. He will refuse to share with them the flesh he is devouring, the flesh of one of his own children, because he has nothing else to eat during the siege and terrible distress that your enemy will inflict on all your towns. The most tender and delicate woman among you, so delicate she would not so much as touch the ground with her foot, will be selfish toward the husband she loves and toward her own son or daughter. She will hide from them the afterbirth and the new baby she has born so that she herself can secretly eat them. She will have nothing else to eat during the siege and terrible distress that your enemy will inflict on all your towns. So, extremely grim. Also sounds quite similar to what we're reading about in Second Kings chapter 6 where the city is taken under siege People are dying from starvation, resorting to cannibalism. There's no food anywhere. And uh, it's just completely gone into a, a travesty. But it ends on a positive note. Elisha says... Uh, where we left off 7-1. Listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord says. By this time tomorrow, the markets of Samaria, five quarts of choice flour will cost only one piece of silver and 10 quarts of barley grain will cost only one piece of silver. Again, this is probably not an outcome that anyone in this city could picture. In their current situation, starving to death, no food, no money, they're dying left and right, or murdering each other left and right. No one would probably ever imagine that by the very next day, their economy will have flipped on its head. The officer assisting the king said to the man of God, that couldn't happen even if the Lord opened the windows of heaven. But Elisha replied, you will see it happen with your own eyes, but you won't be able to eat any of it. And perhaps that's because of the officer's... Um, doubt or lack of faith. Anyway, we'll read chapter seven next time. In the New Testament, I'm picking up in Romans chapter five, but a quick recap. Last time was Romans chapter four, which was a review of the faith of Abraham. Chapter four started off saying Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. Abraham was the founder of uh, the Jewish faith and the Jewish nation. And then it goes on to say in verse 11, uh, so Abraham is the spiritual father of those who have faith, but have not been circumcised. They are counted as righteous because of their faith. He's not just the father of Jews, but the father of everyone who has faith in God. And in 13, it said, clearly God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was based not on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with those who obey the law. And then in verse 16, it says, for Abraham is the father of all who believe. And then it closed with this, Abraham never wavered on believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger and in this he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. I don't think many can say that, that they're fully convinced that God can do whatever he says he can do. 
And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So then there's this parallel made between Abraham and Jesus. Abraham, through his act of faith, paved the way for the rest of us to have our faith counted as righteousness as well. Just as Jesus, when he died, he died for the sins of all. He made the way for us all to be saved. Now we're moving on to chapter five. This one has a couple subtitles here. Faith brings joy and then Adam and Christ contrasted. So before we talked about Abraham and his faith in contrasting Abraham with Jesus. And here we talk about faith bringing joy and a little bit about Adam. So Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we've been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us to this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. How often do you hear people refer to faith in Christ as a privilege? But it is a privilege. Even in today's society, being part of the Christian religious majority in the U.S. is certainly a privilege. Verse 3, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials for we know that they help us develop endurance and endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. You know, I feel like I hear people talk a lot about God, the Father, God, the King, um, Savior, Lord. It's not often you hear people talk about how what Christ did made us friends of God. But that's certainly what it just said here. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still, everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit commandment of God as Adam did. Now, Adam is a symbol and representation of Christ who was, who was yet to come. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. 
And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we're guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right, a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners, but because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were, but as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And if in reading that you think, well, shoot, if sin just causes more of God's grace, then I should sin all the more. Well, Paul has something to say about that elsewhere. <laughs> so I wasn't going to read any of the comments on this section, and I wasn't going to share many thoughts on my own until I came across this very last comment. The authors of the commentary in my Bible are not often poetic. They're very factual. They will sometimes share opinions or perceptions of a matter, but not often in any form of illustration. Until I read uh, this comment, which is about the end of our chapter, Romans 5, 20, and I'll read verses uh, 20 and 21 first. Uh, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were, but as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Some people see Christianity as this list of do's and don'ts about what music to listen to, what shows to watch, what words to say, what attitude to have, how to handle difficult conversations, how to approach conflict. Some of these things are perfectly good advice. But just as my marriage isn't a list of do's and don'ts with my husband, a relationship with Christ isn't either. Now, with me and my husband, it's a relationship of equals. But with God and Christ, obviously, we're not equals. <laughs> and still, he doesn't just give me a list of do's and don'ts. Here's, here's the comment. As a sinner separated from God, you see his law from below as a ladder to be climbed to get to God. Perhaps you have repeatedly tried to climb it, only to fall to the ground every time you have advanced one or two rungs. Or perhaps the sheer height of the ladder seems so overwhelming that you have never started up it. In either case, what relief you should feel to see Jesus offering with open arms to lift you above the ladder of the law, to take you directly to God. 
Once Jesus lips you into God's presence, you are free to obey out of love, not necessity. And through God's power, not your own, you know that if you stumble, you will not fall back to the ground. Instead, you will be caught and held in Christ's loving arms. And I think the reason that we can have a relationship with him and not have to worry so much about do's and don'ts is while there is a lot in scripture about obedience, it's all from the perspective of love. God is love. And that's all he asks from us when it comes down to it.